0: Well, another miracle text, another Brandon sermon. I, I walked in, and this is no joke, before the first gathering, I had a couple people actually call me the Miracle Man, which is single-handedly the most untrue but yet awesome nickname I've ever had. I started to tell what my most embarrassing nickname was in the last service, but I've learned from my mistake. I will not give you that much ammunition today. Oh, I, I can't do it. You guys will call me nothing but that for the rest of my life. So turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Rod was supposed to be preaching, but he's in Jordan with a team working with refugee ministry. It's my, vo- like, my voice is changing right before your eyes, isn't it? Right here. Do I need to do anything, Caleb? Okay. Rod is in, the, in Jordan with the team, so obviously he can't preach, so he gave a signal to the bullpen, called me in for some relief preaching. Hopefully you guys are not holding your breath like I do every time the Tigers make that seminal. No? Go to the relief. We had a lot of Tigers fans in the first service. They were instantly right there with me. Tiger relief pitching is just bad this year. So thankfully, I've got a good service or a good uh, text to help us out. Luke chapter 5 is all about discipleship. It's Jesus calling his first disciples. And I want to tell you before we even begin that this may be his calling of the first, but it's certainly not the last. In fact, he's not done. Today, he's still calling us into a discipleship relationship with him. So what we're going to do is we're going to attack this passage with three main areas. We're going to look at the catch. The confession and the call. The catch, the confession, and the call. This outline has been brought to you by the letter C. (laughs) And you say, that's really cheesy, Brandon. I agree. But I spent a solid five minutes kind of twisting it and contorting it and making it work. So we're going to go with it. The catch, the confession, and the call. Luke chapter 5. Before we begin, too, I want to let you know I'm not going to have you stand and read the passage right now. I know for some people that's probably going to bother you. You love doing that. We're going to actually stand and read it at the end. Once we've studied it. Once we've prayed through it. Once we've wrestled with the text. And I want to just try it out. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You guys can come up. I'll collect your apology from me. If we're really tight, I'll even hug it out with you. All right? Is that fair? Perfect. Okay, so we're going to start. Luke chapter 1 or chapter 5. Let's not do Luke chapter 1. I'm not prepared. First verse, one day Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Pause. Yes, this is the speed we're going to go at. We're going to make a lot of pauses along the way, but a little pop quiz for you. No pressure, but the 830 service nailed this. What is the other name for the lake of Gennesaret? I love it. I love preaching here. Like even random Bible trivia, you guys know it already. You guys should be preaching Depending on what part of the country you're in, what part of the lake, some people call it the Sea of Galilee, some people call it the Lake of Gennesaret. It's much like in our country today, depending on where you are, you call this different things. Don't say what it is, don't say it out loud yet, but it's called many different things. Pop, soda, I lived in Oklahoma, they called it Coke, I refuse to call it. Every soda Coke, like you walk in, you, you place your order, I'll take a Coke, and they say, what kind? Mountain Dew. <laughs> it's, it's not Coke, but it's really true. And in the first service, there was actually someone at the end who shouted out that they do that too, that they still call it Coke. So there was two whopping people out of the whole congregation that called it Coke last service. But I'm wondering if you can help me solve a little marital dispute Okay, my wife and I, she's my beautiful wife is right here. It was a lot easier in the first service when you weren't here. Um, <laughs> we can get on the same page with almost anything. But this is one area that we just cannot seem to get on the same page about. What do you call that? So I'm gonna poll the audience. Alright? Here's the rule: everyone has to answer. Everyone, okay? We live in America, we have democracy. Don't waste the right to vote. All right? So I'm going to have you, I, in the first service, had them raise their hand. I want to actually ramp it up a little bit. I want you to stand, wave your arms, do whatever you want to do, okay? But for the first people, the first group, if you wrongly think that it's called soda, let me see it. Yes, I like where this is headed already. Okay, I will say there were more people in your defense in the the 830 service that were soda fans, but what about the people who know in your heart, you just instinctively, (laughs) by divine revelation from the Holy Spirit himself, know that it's called pop. Let me hear from you. Come on. I love it. Can Can I pick on you a little more? Can we do a little story time with Brandon? So my wife's from Florida, and here's the deal, when, when your wife is like smarter and funnier and just better than you in every way, you take the shallow victories when you can have them, but she refuses to say that anything in Michigan is a beach, that a beach is where ocean meets sand. Wow, I, I didn't expect this response, I'm sorry, sweetheart. So I took her to Ludington. I took her to Holland. I took her to Pentwater and Grand Haven and Traverse City, all these different places. And she says, they're beautiful, but it's not a beach. (laughs) What do you call them, sweetheart? WMLs. Water meets land. (laughs) I love you. Next time you guys head out to the WML, think about my wife because she's awesome and she's a Florida girl who grew up with apparently much better beaches. Um, Let's get back to the sermon, huh? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good idea before I get myself in any more trouble. Um, We're talking about the Sea of Galilee. I'm just going to call it that since that's the name most of us are familiar with. It's actually a lot bigger than you think. When I went there, I was shocked at the size. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles by six miles wide. Boy, that they got nothing from you guys. I see. I'm going to have to help you out on how big that is, okay? So say, how big is that, Brandon? How big is that? I'm so glad you asked. All right. First slide here. This is Grand Rapids. If you find yourself for a moment, if you need a hint, the yellow balloon is where we are. That's 131 down the middle, 196. Everyone got a a good framework? Okay, perfect. Now, we're going to have to zoom out a little bit for me to show you the size of the Sea of Galilee, but why don't you go ahead and show it up there? Next slide. Okay, there it is. All right. That is the size of the Sea of Galilee. If we were to actually go about a half mile up this way to the north and we got on 131 at Leonard Street, we would have to drive all the way past Franklin, past Hall, past Burton, past 28th Street to 36th Street just to do the width of the Sea of Galilee. For those who can't see the map, maybe listening on CD or whatever, that would be from Standale, Wilson Road, all the way east to Forest Hills, just about there. That's a big, big lake. It's also 200 feet deep. Hmm. Mm, still nothing. How, co- how deep is it? I'm so glad you asked how deep it is. I'm actually going to need a volunteer to say how deep it is. How about Steve Van Poulin? You know what? Let's, can we get Reverend Steve Van Poulin up here? Thanks for volunteering. Is Steve in here? He's not. Good. My job is safe for a little bit. Um, if we had Steve Van Poolen here, and there was like we could clone him, it would take almost forty Steve Van Poolens standing on top of each other's shoulders to show how deep it is. <laughs> so we have here, if you can, if you're in the way back, that's actually a column, like a leaning tower of Steve Van Poolens, and it's actually two size with the leaning tower of Pisa. So that's how deep it is. It would take 40 Steve Van Poulens. This is a deep, large, very blue lake. And just that we're all picturing the same thing too, even if you go there today, there's not a bunch of houses around this. There's no jet skis whipping back and forth. People really, even today in Israel, don't don't enjoy recreational boating activities like we do here. So it's pretty open. The climate, there's steep cliffs and and plains and the hot and cold pressure system makes for really violent storms. And that's where we're at today. So let's step in a little bit more. Go back to verse one. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him, listening to the word of God. Now it's very hard to preach when people are crowding all over you and you're being crunched or so i'm told i've typically have the opposite problem of that when i'm preaching but jesus is getting pressed in on every side and so he looks around verse two he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets he got into one of the boats the one belonging to peter pause here for a second I would love this. I'd love like to be on Grand, at Grand Haven on a really hot summer day, walking along the river, eating a pronto pup, and see a really nice boat, and just like hop in it, and just like, you sir, take me for a jaunt about the lake, <laughs> which is obviously how people with large boats talk. <laughs> jaunt about the lake. Anyhow, so that's what Jesus does. He just hops in the boat. Peter, take me out. Will you you mind rowing me out just a little bit so I can talk to the people? Now, if you're picturing a fishing boat, it's not like a yacht like you'd see in Grand Haven or a big speedboat or anything like that. But this is not small either. There was a a couple decades ago, uh, there was a a drought. And the water receded um, back from the Sea of Galilee. And it actually exposed an old fishing boat in the mud. And they dug it up and they took care of it and they dated it. And it actually dates to this time, the first century. So we have before us, so you can go to Israel and look at it, a boat that was around during the time of Jesus. It's 27 feet long. Most of these boats were. So to put that in perspective, a school bus is about 37 feet. It's shorter than that, but it's sizable. This was a task to row a boat out like that. And so Jesus asked them, this is verse 3, Jesus asked them to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. Why would he do this? It's not just to keep from getting crushed by the crowds. Jesus is really, really smart. He's employing the highest technology of the day. Aqua acoustics. Okay? Water is a great amplifier for sound. Maybe you've seen this, like you've been out on the water or you've been on the shore when someone's out in a boat and you can hear every word that they're saying even though they're a long ways out makes for really awkward moments at times. Jesus knows this. He knows that as a preacher, uh, the human voice is really finite. It's really limited. You have to preserve it. Unless you're George Whitfield. You guys know George Whitfield. He's a famous preacher from quite a while ago. And he had a voice that was just, it was mesmerizing to people. In fact, his voice was described that he could bring a whole crowd to tears and get people weeping by simply uttering the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> Whitfield, though, Benjamin Franklin went to see him. and Benjamin Franklin, that seems to me like a pretty like, reliable source on this. He went to see him and he said George Whitfield preached to a crowd of 23,000 people before the invention of the microphone. That's a lot of projecting. So he spoke to him for two hours, and then it's rumored that he went back to kind of like his dressing room area or whatever it was, and he spent an hour coughing up blood. That is dedication. Please do not expect the same level of dedication from me today. So... Now that we have our picture, our scene, Jesus is on the boat. He's sitting comfortably. He's talking in a reasonable voice because the sound is just traveling throughout. It's a big lake. It's blue. It's a beautiful day. And now let's go into the catch. The first section for us. Verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Peter, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Peter answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. I suppose this is as good a place as any to talk about fishing. How many of you guys have ever seen a Bill Dance show? A couple. The people who have are smiling, which tells me, come on, we got some fishers in here. The rest of you, this is like a, it's like a sad commentary on American culture. Where have we gone that we don't even know the most famous fishermen in our country? I mean, you guys are gonna tell me you don't know the, our best ping pong player? Or the Olympic curling team next? Why do we not know who Bill Dance is? Um, fishing back then, they did very similar to Bill Dance still. They, they had line and hook. I didn't realize that until this week when I started studying it. I really should have because Matthew 17, Jesus tells Peter, go cast a line with a hook on it, catch a fish, and you'll find the temple tax in it. It's an amazing story. But that's not the kind of fishing that they're doing here they're using something called trammel nets. You guys know what trammel nets are? Trammel nets, I wasn't too sure about these either, but they're actually three nets in one. And it's a larger net that the fish can easily swim through, and then a smaller net that's much tougher, and then the inner one is like a very, it's a much finer mesh. I think I have a picture. Perfect, it's already up there. So the fish would run into these things, they'd get trapped, and then the fishermen would pull up the nets, and they'd kind of Wiggle the fish loose, which is why they had to mend them oftentimes because they'd break as the fish struggled in that. So these trammel nets were actually a lot bigger than I thought, too. Do we have a picture of them? That's a big net. So, how do you get the fish to swim into it, though? That's the question. The first thing is it had to be at night because the fish could see it. The nets were so big that they'd avoid them. And so they'd lay out very carefully these nets and then they'd be in the boat and they'd scare the fish. So they'd start slapping the water with their oars. They'd start stomping their feet, dancing around, making as much noise as possible to startle the fish to go really deep and get trapped in these nets. Now, with that in mind, let's look at what Jesus is asking Peter to do. He spent all night lifting up these heavy nets, and now Jesus has a request of him. Verse 4. We already read it. When he had finished speaking, he said to to Peter, put out in the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. This is a huge ask, okay? Peter spent all night long, he's frustrated, he's tired, he hasn't caught a single thing, but he spent all night lifting up these nets, stomping around, slapping the water, putting the nets back down, and now he's washing them on the shore before rowing Jesus out. So the, the first request that Jesus made is, I mean, even for this tired fisherman to take the opportunity to row him out to the water for him to preach. I mean, you think it's tough to stay awake during one of my sermons. Imagine in this moment you've worked all night, you're exhausted, and you're sitting there kind of keeping the boat the same distance from shore, but it's a hot day, the sun's on you, the rhythmic bobbing up and down of the waters, and Jesus is likely teaching for a couple of hours. And Peter's at this point, and then Jesus asks a bigger ask. He says, Simon, I want you to go get your nets. Yep, the one that you've already fished with, the ones that you've already washed and you've hung them out to dry. They're probably back on shore. I want you to go get those. And I want you to row us all the way back out to the deep water. I want you to go through your whole charade, stomping on the boat, doing all that stuff. Will you do that for me? Peter, in all likelihood, is thinking, Jesus, you're the son of a carpenter. Like, leave the fishing to me. I know how to do this. The fish are not in the deep water during the day. We're never going to catch anything. He's probably thinking, I'll have to go get the nets. These things weighed hundreds of pounds. One scholar said it probably weighed a 1,000 pounds. Lift those up. Put them into the boat. Row all the way out to the deep water. And then I have to go throw the nets in. Do that little charade. But this time, during the middle of broad daylight, while everyone's watching... It's probably humiliating. Even the land lovers know that right now he's not going to catch any fish. And then he has to endure the humiliation of lifting up empty nets, putting them back in the boat, doing the row of shame all the way back. Jesus is going to go on to another town, but Peter has to see these people every day. Remember that time you listened to Jesus and you tried to fish during the middle of the day? Peter has no reason right now to do this. He has every reason to say, I think I'm going to sit this out, Jesus. But look at his answer. Verse 5. Peter answered, Master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught a thing. I'm guessing there was a long pause like that right there, where he's just kind of waiting for Jesus to be like, Yeah, it was a bad idea. <laughs> but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners and the other boats to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Two almost 30 feet long boats just heaping full of fish. Tim Keller is a pastor out in New York City. Uh, one of my mentors. We meet together pretty regularly via book, because he has no idea that I exist. <laughs> Anyhow, I was reading something that TJ said. We're tight, so I call him that. And TJ said something that really got me thinking about this passage in particular. Jesus doesn't give Peter any reasons to obey here. In fact, Peter quotes off all the reasons he shouldn't. We've worked too hard. We haven't caught anything. Peter has no reason to do this. None Except for one. And he says it. Because you said so. Jesus, because you said so, I will do it. And here's what I've been thinking. I think that there's a big difference between obeying God and being advised by him. There's a difference between obeying God and just taking his advice when it seems prudent. Most of us are like kids with God. We constantly ask the why question. Why shouldn't I lie in this situation? I'm not hurting anybody. Why shouldn't I be with this person? They make me happy. Why shouldn't I be able to blow off steam in this way or that way? Why? 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 And Keller would argue that regardless of the response here, it's not true obedience. Even if we follow through, if we have to be shown all of the reasons why this makes the most sense for us. If you're doing it because you're practical, or because it's practical, or because it makes sense with the goals that you have in your life, I think that we take God from the role of king and we put him in the role of advisor a lot of times in our lives. Saying, I'll follow if. I'll follow if it makes sense. If in the long run it's what's best. Obedience, true obedience, is like Peter, though God, this doesn't make sense. I don't know why this is gonna happen. It doesn't doesn't make any sense at all. But you make sense, and so I'll trust you. Advise means I'll follow when I see the reason, when I see the logic, when I see the payoff. Obey means I'll follow even when I don't see any logic behind it. Honesty time. Are you guys following Jesus? Is he your king? Or is he one of your counselors or your advisors? By the way, is my microphone, is this getting distracting here? I'm fine. Keep going. That's what I'm hoping you'll say. Keep going. No, not Brandon, stop. Your microphone's so bad. Yeah, we should just be done. All right, let's look at the confession. Last week, I said that miracles weren't just about The act that happened, or the supernatural. They were windows through which we peer into the very kingdom of God. They're they're windows where we get a glimpse into something that's deeper and beyond it. Craig Blomberg says that they're parables, that they're designed to teach us something. That's what the point of them is. And Peter gets this. Peter gets this. His response to this catch of fish isn't, This is awesome! We're going to be rich! Like rolling around in the boat full of fish, like in all the scales, like Scrooge McDuck. Any Ducktales fans? You guys know what I'm talking about. I'm sorry to the older generation that has no clue what I'm talking about right now. Um, in the first service, though, we had some people say it was Sody pop, and so the younger people had no idea about that. So I suppose it's only fair. Peter doesn't respond that way though. He's not caught up with the fish. He's not amazed by what he just caught. He's amazed by who he's in the presence of. He instinctively knows that the the point of the miracle wasn't to provide fish for some poor fishermen. It was to reveal something about Jesus. Look at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I'm unclean. If you were at the service last week... Get away. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And so were James and John, the son of Zebedee, Peter's partners. In the presence of Jesus, all the chaos of like sorting through these fish, getting them to market just like fades into the background for Peter because what he has to do is reconcile how he can stand before a holy man that just orders the fish around. I'm going to say something that some commentators will disagree with me about. I think that there's way better evidence for this. Come up and talk to me afterwards. We'll nerd out on original language if you want. I think Peter sees the deity of Christ already right here. And the reason that I say that is because he responds the way that people respond when they see the Lord. Most famously, I think of like Isaiah in Isaiah 6. What's Isaiah's response? Let me read it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds began to shake, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs, with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go with us? And I said, Here I am. Over here, send me. And he said, Go and tell these people. A vision of something that's truly holy always reveals the inadequacy in ourselves. When we see something that is... Pure and perfect and holy. We're both attracted to it, but instantly know too that we shouldn't be around it. That we're not worthy. Christians have been talking about this for years. Charles Spurgeon, a very famous preacher, wrote about this. This reaction. I want to read it for you. It says, Peter, feeling as if he, so sinful, had come too close to the Lord, who is gracious, that he must dare not keep near him. He's saying, Peter realized that he came way too close to a holy man and that he shouldn't stay there. He needs to get out of there quick. And then Spurgeon asks, Have you never felt the same as that? If not, I fear that you've never known the Lord, not truly for yourself. For the knowledge of Christ combined with the knowledge of ourselves is sure to produce this holy shrinking, in which we have no need for anyone to say to us, Take off your shoes. For your, this is holy ground, for we're almost ready to put off our very body, for we can scarcely bear the glory in the presence of the Lord. Let me say it again. A vision of the holy will always reveal the inadequacies, the unholiness within us. We press close to God, as Hebrews says, and we approach with confidence Because of Christ. But it's only by Christ's blood we must recognize that apart from that, we have no business being anywhere near a holy and righteous and perfect God. Jesus' response to this confession by Peter is just amazing to me. Look at verse 10. Then Jesus said to Peter, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything and they followed him. This is the call. Jesus doesn't chastise this humble sinner. He had every right to be like, yeah, you are sinful. I'm going to leave now. But he calms him with these words, don't be afraid. And then he goes beyond even that and he invites him. He gives him an invitation from now on. These words, it's like cluing them in. Peter, this is going to be huge, okay? Your life is going this way. This is going to be one of those moments, though, where your life will never be the same. From now on, your life will look dramatically different than it does right now. This is where I wish that this wasn't a sermon and I could like sit down with each one of you and kind of ask, do you you know this? Have you had one of these moments where you realize I'm living for myself, I'm living for the world and then I saw the Lord and it changed me and from now on my life will never be the same. I think there'll always be a moment like this in the life of a believer. Does your life look different today than it did before you found Christ if you know him? And then he gives them this this call He says, you're going to fish for people. This invitation, he doesn't turn his back on the sinner, but Jesus actually invites us to partner with him in his mission of bringing the good news to the world. And it's kind of an odd metaphor to fish for people. The point of it is rescue. I've heard it said that the metaphor is not kill and eat, but save and feed. The comparison is trusting God for this catch. You trusted me to provide all these fish. Now, Go out, sow the seed, throw your nets out, and trust me to bring people to myself what 's peter 's response? He left everything and he followed him. I want to clarify this doesn 't mean that every one of you need to quit your jobs all right i don 't want to get a bunch of angry emails from employers all over Grand Rapids tomorrow saying that, well, my employee just quit, and they said that you told them to. What this is saying something a little bit different. They didn't quit necessarily. In fact, even if you read in the Gospels, let me back up for a second. They, they clearly kept their boats. They clearly kept their nets. They go back to them at some point. But what this means is that the priority of their life will no longer be fishing. The thing that's most important to them will no longer be fishing. They've found something far greater to live for. In the wake of the greatest catch that they've ever seen, I'm guessing. Two heaping boatfuls of fish, a lot of money on the table. They've found something that's worth so much more. Discipleship is a recentering of your life. Actually, scratch that. It's not a recentering, it's a total reorientation of your life what you're centered upon is no longer the same thing. Jesus isn't just something that you tuck in and you fit in among the other things. He is what you center and orient your entire life around. He didn't die just to be fit in. He died to save us completely. My fear is that a lot of us we miss we miss this and we could never respond like Peter. I know I do this sometimes because I can't take my eyes off the fish. I get so caught up in the blessing that I miss the blesser. I focus on what he's done for me as opposed to who he is. But not Peter. He drops everything to follow God. Why? Because he's found something far, far, far better and more substantial than anything that he's ever found. Millions of things in this life promise satisfaction, but only one thing delivers, and Peter's found it. He's found the pearl of great price. You say, what is that? Let me read for you in Matthew. It's a parable. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold everything he had and he bought that field. So this man is coming, walking through a field and he finds this immense treasure worth more than anything he's ever seen. He hides it so that he can own the land and he can own this treasure. He sells everything that he has with joy because he's found something better. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found the one of great value, he went away and he sold everything everything that he had so he could buy it. Discipleship is a recognition that there's something worth so much more than anything this world could offer. I would gladly, with joy, it's not, a, not something I have to force myself to do, sell everything to have it because he's so valuable. We've got a Savior who calls us to do this but who did this for us. A God who came down and he sold all and gave up all So that when we stand in the presence of a holy God, we don't have to say, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, but we can approach with confidence because Jesus has exchanged his righteousness with our unholiness. Is he worth following today? Are you following him? I wanna challenge you. Peter does two things. One, he steps out in obedience, even when it doesn't make sense, even when there isn't logic behind it. Are there any of you in this room They need to step out in something. You've got something where Jesus is calling you to draw closer to him. You just need to obey today. For others, I wonder, is there anything that's ripping you off? Anything that you need to leave behind to press in and really follow hard after him? Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful that you You didn't leave us in the state of just standing before you declaring, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. You didn't leave us in our sin to die that would have been just, that would have been the thing that most would do, but you came down and you became a holy man who took on our sin so that now we can approach you with confidence. God, I pray that if there's anything that's blocking us from really following after you, from accepting your invitation that you still call out today towards discipleship, that we just get it out of our lives, God, that we'd pare back, that we'd realize that you're worth more than anything this world could offer. And God, turn us into a people that's a a church of fishermen and fisherwomen that go out and just proclaim your good news, the news that you're still calling disciples. Raise us up, God. Jesus' precious and holy name.